everyone, it's Antoinette Oglethorpe here with the Talent Development Mastery Podcast. Today I'm talking to Clodagh O'Reilly, who leads the Workforce Science and Analytics Practice for IBM's Smarter Workforce Unit in EMEA. Clodagh used to be the chair for the Association of Business Psychologists and has been applying psychology at work to measure, predict, and enable peak performance for well over a decade. She is particularly committed to empowering individuals at work to create and sustain commercial success. And that's the subject of our call today. Today we're talking about leadership empowerment and the 21st century workforce. Hi, Clodagh. Welcome to the call. Thanks, Antoinette. Good to be here. So, Clodagh, I know that you spend a lot of time traveling the world, speaking at conferences about this subject. So what attracted you to this subject? Why is it so important? Well, I've got a long uh, background in uh, interest in diversity and diversity generally and inclusion is a lot about allowing freedom for people to be themselves. And it seems that most organizational structures constrain that to a great extent. So uh, when I read in the IBM CEO survey, which was put out by the Institute of Business Value in 2012, that there was a definite need for organizations to be more open um, and empowering rather than rules-based. I, I, I felt it resonated definitely with, with what I believed to be a potential solution to a lot of the issues we have around uh, engagement, inclusivity, uh, and diversity in the workforce. And I think that since then, um, I've, I've not been able to leave it behind as a topic because we're seeing increased complexity and uncertainty in organizations. Um, and, and the ambiguity and volatility that leaders are dealing with means that traditional hierarchical systems can constrain the success of those organizations. And in fact, you know, the nature of power is being compromised and challenged in organizations today. And I see the only way forward being creating much more empowered organizations that we have a lot more trust. So um, tell me a little bit more about that. It's interesting, this, the word power and empower um, how is power changing in organizations and what does that mean in terms of the need for empowerment? So if we consider the traditional models uh, and the things we may have taken for granted in the past was that there were people in organizations who had power and those who essentially followed uh, those with the power. And that's been fundamentally undermined today. So let me take an example that's outside of the workforce. If we look um, at customer service models, for example, let's pretend, let's say you're John Lewis and, and you have a high-speed store. You used to, as an organization, be able to entirely control the experience of your customers. They came into your store on your terms, at your times, and dealt with your people in order to get the product that you priced or put on sale. Today, they can be rebuying those things online. They can be reselling those things online. They may never come in contact with you or your store or even your online web page in order to get access to the things that you uniquely sell, thanks to models like Amazon or Ubid or uh, eBay and so on, Gumtree. In that context, your power traditionally to control their experience, for instance, is completely taken away. And similarly, what we're finding is that in organizations, in workforces, uh, people have become so connected with one another that they don't need to work through their leaders to get things done. And they don't need uh, to go up and down a hierarchical connection, potentially, to achieve success. So we're getting a more distributed uh, experience of uh, power in organizations. 
So accepting that that power is no longer yours and actually empowering those people that have got the access uh, to, to make better decisions and use it to the business's advantage is what I'm proposing is the best way forward. Okay. So how is this showing up in organizations? When you, you gave that example of John Lewis and how it's changing um, the consumer marketplace, how is this um, affecting organizations and, and what we might see in a workplace? So one of the things, uh, there's a couple of sort of uh, popular cases that, that demonstrate what it's like when people um, start connecting outside of the typical hierarchical structures. Two particular good examples are experiments in holacracies and hierarchies. So Zappos is very famously pursuing a holocratic um, approach. What that means is that they have accepted that there is a distribution of power in their organization. And what they do alongside that, therefore, is entirely distribute accountability as well. So it's not like there is a leader who has responsibility and other people doing what they like. It's about everybody sharing that responsibility equally um, with particular tasks and skill sets in mind. And then, in that holocratic way, achieving the business objectives, not in a hierarchical way. Another solution uh, that some are pursuing, particularly relevant uh, in, in um, more volatile business models, is hierarchies. And in the hierocratic space, uh, the power goes where the expertise are that are most in demand at a particular time. So essentially, people get aligned uh, in a hyper-connected way to what needs to be done in the short term. And that can be dictated by the person who is best to suggest that in the short term rather than a stable single person with power at any point in time. And so is this something that is true in all organizations? You, you mentioned there you know, um, the power going or, or it, it moving with the expertise. Is this something that is more relevant to um, knowledge worker organizations or is it true for all organizations? I think every organization will have their own experience of this, and that will depend on the nature of the workforce, absolutely. So if we consider um, the McKinsey model of um, types of role, they suggest that there are three types of role. There is the tacit, the transactional, and the transformational. So what we would call a knowledge worker, that would be a tacit role. But let's just start at the, the sort of bottom of, of that pyramid. When we have transformational roles, where a person's job is to transform, for example, raw materials into a product, let's say use leather and soles to make shoes, there has to be a lot of standardization and some rules because that individual needs to meet quality standards. We need to be sure that they're safe uh, in, in the way they do it. We need to be sure they're efficient uh, and effective as well. So it's more likely that there will need to be some rules and consistency in that type of role than there would be, for example, for a knowledge worker. The other type of role we see is a transactional uh, role. So a transactional role has got both some basics and rules, perhaps uh, products, policies, pricing um, that are stable. But when they interact with a customer, for example, they may need to adapt that policy pricing or process accordingly. So they're somewhat governed by rules, but actually there's a significant component of their jobs that is best enabled in, with freedom and empowerment to make sure that they do the right thing, no matter what context they find themselves in. And then finally, in the tacit roles, where there's the most ambiguity, knowledge workers who never necessarily know where the next challenge or solution is going to come from, uh, those people would definitely be maximally benefit 
from a robust enablement and empowerment um, solution and culture rather than a rules-based culture. So the more freedom, I guess, that you give people and the more openness there is, um, I can see that that gives greater opportunity for creativity. Um, but I'm also thinking, you know, we know in situations like that, there's a greater need for collaboration and therefore um, things tend to take longer and I guess there's more potential for conflict. Um, is this something that organisations have a choice over whether they do or um, really is this something that you know, organisations now you know, require um, in order to compete? I would suggest that uh, you know the the influencers that are causing this change are external to the organisation. People's social connections it's not something that we can pretend doesn't exist. People's ability to find information that they didn't used to have access to, you know that that's not something we can quell. We need to accept that that is an inevitability uh, for where we are now. So um, I guess to some extent there is there is a need to get on board because you can't really get off this kind of uh, the ship has sailed as it were. But um, mm -hmm. I think there's a bigger uh, sort of philosophical point here, which is actually organizations are more vulnerable to losing the talent that they need than ever. And they're finding it harder and harder to recruit. So if we look at um, you know, a range of surveys between uh, whether it's Deloitte or Accenture or um, IBM and, and PwC, we find that seven out of 10 CEOs categorically recognize that keeping the right people is critical to their success. And yet, 7 out of 10 of them also see that they don't have the talent that they need. About 2 out of 3 CEOs say that they don't have the skills they need to compete and that they are losing business as a result. So we're in an environment whereby if we don't meet the needs of those, for example, tacit workers, who are the highest value workers potentially in our organizations, we cannot afford to lose them because our entire business and infrastructure model could be at risk. So rather, if we rely on self-organization, adaptive system, letting every employee be and produce their optimal kind of results, collectively they will seize opportunities and collectively they will achieve far more in a far more robust way than we could ever imagine to structure an organization to achieve. So you get this almost organic resilience um, built into the system because it is fundamentally human rather than an imposed structure. Okay. So this sounds um, incredibly challenging. How do organizations do this? How do they empower their people in a way that enables performance um, and, and doesn't risk it? I think the first thing is to, act, to, to, to accept or recognize the limitations of the structures that may have been in place in the past. Because it's not about change for change's sake. It's about recognizing the weaknesses and realizing that this is an inevitability. So just as a simple expression, you know, traditionally society likes rules because it gives everybody a level playing field, you might suggest. People, people find comfort in rules. But the fact of the matter is that rules break down in times of change. We can have a black and white rule about something being right or wrong. Let's say, for example, drugs are bad. Don't do drugs. And you might tell your kids, don't do drugs, and that might seem entirely reasonable until they fall ill and they need a drug-based intervention. And then you're going to say categorically in this circumstance, when it's medicinal drugs, drugs are good. Take the drugs. And, you know, it's that simplicity, that simple example of the fact that if we make rules, we're vulnerable 
that change will derail us. So when we accept that whether those rules are competency frameworks for how people should behave or whether there are more specific rules you know, about uh, other processes, if they cannot withstand change, which most rules can't, they'll break down and you'll end up losing control um, inadvertently. So what we suggest is instead of losing control, slowly but surely release that control. You realize, and so you release the control by uh, establishing where you have uh, prevailing culture that can uh, withstand change, and then slowly but surely recalibrating the controls that go beyond what the culture can contain. So tell me a little bit more about that one, Clodagh. So um, you I, um, recalibrate the controls. What does that mean? So what we might first do, uh, so it's kind of a three-step process. The first being that we confront the reality of where we are. Then we build um, the, the sort of resilient backbone to all of this, which is values that employees can live out. And then we recalibrate those controls. So first off, when we talk about confronting a cultural reality, this is not about your EVP. This is not about your brand. This is a good hard look at the truth about your corporate character. This is, this is what's actually revealed by the way people act and make decisions, both your employees and your leaders. Recognizing that that may or may not be something we're particularly proud of, we've then got a baseline from which to say, is this the future that we want for this organization? Is this the culture we want to perpetuate? Also, that gives you a base of what is the truth about what our people believe to be true. And that allows us to then construct a cultural um, sort of values-based system that employees can and will naturally opt into. They'll recognize the truth in it. They can recognize the value in it. And they then use that as a basis to share beliefs. And um, that can only be done if, indeed, the employees have been fundamental to creating so essentially, this is about creating a strong corporate culture. And once you have in place a really strong corporate culture, it allows people to start to make decisions more pragmatically. So for example, uh, in the banking sector, this used to be about, you know, do the right thing for customers. And it's supposed to be uh, an understanding that there is something bigger than whether or not you sell this product, whether or not you use this pricing. It's supposed to be what is ethically correct. And it's about showing integrity. And so that's the point at which you can start to release the controls of telling them which product to sell or which pricing to use. Not sure banking is the best example, but it's an example. Uh, because in fact, you're seeking to actually control through values and you're getting as much consistency as the circumstance will allow without the weakness of a rules-based system. And then okay. that again goes to those roles I mentioned from McKinsey where, you know, different roles will have different impacts. But, uh, you know, in tacit roles, values can absolutely be more um, empowering than, than any rules could be. So, um, so essentially you're saying if we have strong values and they are truly lived throughout the organization and form the culture, then people will make decisions and take actions based on those values rather than on rules and policies. Absolutely. That's, that's the ideal. Okay. And when you say confront the corporate reality, and I, I guess basically get a baseline of where, where an organization is already in terms of, I guess, how strong their values are or how well they're lived. How do you do that? Is that through talking to employees, talking to customers, um, both? 
probably probably both of those things, yeah. And you can do this in a as structured or as open a way uh, as you feel useful. You might run surveys, you might run focus groups, but equally, uh, we've known organisations uh, and, and IBM ourselves have done this through online social jams, which is like a big open conversation of hundreds of thousands of people saying this is what it means to me, and I agree or disagree with you know what you've said about you and really helping people say, is this the truth, as opposed to just, is this what we want uh, the corporate speak to be? Um, and yeah, that's so what I was thinking. Like, well, yeah, so if I say, for example, and just because you know, I work with IBM, so or for IBM, so I'm, I'm aware of how this has shaped uh, in our organization, um, if we take a value such as dedication to a customer's success, when we say, well, we believe that, uh, when you can have our colleagues and, and we, you know, 440,000 people all saying, but is it true? Have I been incentivized to do that? Or have I been incentivized actually to act differently? Is it about my customers or is it about chasing numbers? Is it about doing the right thing or is it about doing the most you know, commercially viable thing? And it's only when that conversation has been had that can, we can then restate what it means to us as IBMers to truly dedicate ourselves to our customers. Um, and I think it, it, it's that necessary piece to admit if it's not perfect because you can be on a journey to a solution um, rather than to pretend and gloss over it because it will then never hold water, it will never have value, and it will never resonate in the long term. People will always just see it as a statement which they mm. compromise rather than a value that they hold. Mm. So um, apart from IBM, who you know, obviously um, would be an example, is there any other organization you know that is really good at this? My absolute favorite example of this, uh, the, the true value that this can deliver is, is Unilever. Um, you know, what, what we've said is that uh, there's, uh, th th this comes into its own. The value that we deliver through this empowerment agenda is very much in context where there is uh, ambiguity to deal with or volatility and change. And uh, because Unilever has got a very strong corporate culture and they've been pursuing um, a lot of growth in emerging markets, I found it useful to take a sort of a snapshot of them in the last couple of years to say, how has this played out for them? Are they, you know, to, to what extent would they be an example that this can work? And I would say for the time being, they definitely are a brilliant example of how this can work. So Unilever is a complex organization. They've got over 170,000 people in over 100 countries. They've got about 400 brands that they're managing. Um, but they also have, uh, in the, in their, you know, at the heart of the organization, a strong corporate purpose, very strong values. Uh, their values are integrity, respect, responsibility, and being pioneering. And then they have, instead of rules about how to work together or to behave, they have what they call standards. And a standard is blanket um, sort of governance or guidance rather than the specifics of how to act. So that's about how to do things, not what exactly you might do from day to day. So if I look at standards that they have uh, for their leaders, one of them is to have a growth mindset. And that's about being positive and realistic about the company's future, being, compassion uh, sorry, being passionate and competitive, and wanting to win. Another one of their values is to have a bias for action because action-driven leadership has a sense of urgency, which is very much um, critical to uh, people in the FMCG sector, organizations in the FMCG sector, retaining their positions in the market. So when I look at how Unilever's uh, use these things, so if you look at their leaders and you think, if you're going to go into an emerging market, this is really going to test whether or not you've got a resilient organizational culture and leadership model. So when you get into emerging markets, 
you start dealing with regulatory inconsistencies, infrastructure deficiencies, skill shortages, currency fluctuations, you know, unreliable supply chains, patchy information, even political instability perhaps. So a model of a leadership which is defined by behaviors that might work in a mature economy would absolutely break down. But when you have standards like having a growth mindset or having a bias for action, it's easy for uh, those executives to continue to apply those principles no matter what the emerging market context throws at them. So if I look at the performance of Unilever at the time when they were going into these emerging markets around 2013, specifically there was a strong drive, and I compare that with, for example, P&G, who, were doing, who had a very similar strategy at that time, but are known to be a more structured uh, and slightly more rules-driven organization. At the end of 2013, P&G's CFO reflected, and, and to quote him, he said, we may have overextended ourselves a bit with the pace of our portfolio and geographic expansion. So he recognized that their business wasn't up to that task. Over that same period, though, Unilever got to the point of being able to derive 60% of their revenue from emerging markets, and they saw a 9% rise in their profits. So they definitely had the ability to seize the unexpected growth in those markets, and that's what analysts were saying at the time. They were confident that Unilever, Unilever's leadership was powerful enough to see them through. And I think that, for me, is where this comes to the heart. When you trust people to do the right thing, it's a growth mindset, nice for action. It's more empowering and more likely to deliver quick responses to ambiguous circumstances than a rules-based culture could. And, uh, I mean, that's fascinating. It's a great example. Um, I guess it's, it's making me think about how you manage performance when uh, you're operating, uh, say, with these, these standards. You know, how do you actually judge if somebody is operating with a growth mindset or a bias for action? Um, or is even performance management at odds with the whole approach and concept? Well, performance management is critical to a business. I don't think that what most organizations do with, <laughs> in order to manage performance is particularly effective. And I think there's, there's a big gap between, uh, you know, what performance management could offer organizations and indeed what it does offer organizations today. Um, I, I think of the whole sort of gambit of what HR does, uh, you know, very few things come but aren't getting as much criticism right now as performance management is. But what I would say is we would expect realistically to see uh, more spontaneous collaboration, which will drive creativity and it will drive innovation. So if organizations are measuring any of those things, whether they have formal R&D, uh, as an organization might have, like, um, you know, well, whether that's in pharmaceuticals or whether that's in FMCG, whatever, um, you get that. It's also about improvements in efficiencies because innovation can be applied to incremental and continuous improvements. We would also expect to see better customer satisfaction scores because, indeed, happier, empowered staff are more likely to be enabled to do the right thing that will lead to customer satisfaction. We would expect more positive diversity figures over time because people, again, truly being themselves, are more likely to be productive and stay or be attracted to an organization. Uh, their engagement in their work could increase, definitely. Um, I think that performance management generally, if you take it as, a, as, you know, the people factors in context of organizational performance, you'll find organizational drivers of change, uh, sorry, or measures of change, which will improve. Um, but on a very personal basis, you can judge people for the what they were expected to do rather than the how they were expected to do it. And I would suggest KPIs, um, 
could be very specific. It may be, you know, in selling, for example, that we expect you to achieve X goal of, of, of volume of sale. But to say whether or not you have performed, on the one hand, we might want to tick the box on the value of sales. But on the other hand, we would also want to be able to tick a box to say you did that in a way that was aligned to the values and purpose of this organization and in the way mm-hmm. that we trusted you to act. And that can come from peer review, customer review, or indeed manager or observation. Mm-hmm. Fabulous. So, um, Clodagh, if, if someone's listening to this and thinks, yeah, this is what our organization needs, where do they start? What would be their first steps? As I kind of alluded to, I suppose a bit of a recap, we definitely want to um, start to address leaders' perception of their power and control in their organization and whether or not their current controls and power, um, expressions of power are helpful and sustainable. Uh, you know, I, I would say the trust is something that leaders should be more concerned with get, giving than getting. Uh, and so to that, I would say definitely reconsider those three steps that we've mentioned. Look at the cultural reality. Is the organization's current culture fit for purpose and stable and recognized and, and clear? Is it aligned uh, in what we say it is to the fact of how people act? then definitely look to enhance or hone those values so that they are more deeply held beliefs that are shared within the workforce. And then be very honest about which controls can be released and do so progressively in a way that demonstrates, as I've said, trust from your leaders rather than of your leaders. You know, so many people have got uh, things like you know, mandatory monitoring of all sorts of things in their workforce that demonstrate they don't fundamentally trust their workers. And if we can turn that around, the chance that people will rise to our expectations in a positive way is far, far higher. Trust seems to be a big thing. Um, in, I mean, it's, it is what I mean is it's uh, foundational to all of this, isn't it? And um, we all know that many organizations do battle to get trust where it should be. Um, but again, it's about saying, well, do we say we trust each other? That might be our, our EVP or it might be what we want to believe about ourselves. But that's, again, where you get to the beginning point, which is confront the reality. Is that actually what we do? What are the messages that are subliminally suggesting we do or don't trust people? Do we say we trust them, but then still insist on a whole lot of monitoring? Do we say that we trust them and actually start releasing those controls because that would be more symbolically relevant? And you know that, that confronting of reality here is a necessary honesty, which on which you know trust can be built. Hmm. Claude, that's fascinating. I mean, clearly not um, you know an easy exercise, not one that's going to. Uh, that anyone can take and make happen overnight. Um, but some really interesting ideas that I know will stimulate people's thinking. If people want to find out more about your, your ideas and, and the approaches you've described, is, is there a way that they can connect with you or find out more? Anybody's welcome to connect with me, of course, um, and uh, you're welcome to publish uh, contact details with with, with this. Um, I would say also I, I did an article recently on the advisory board of Engage Employee. So um, if people head to the Engage Employee uh, website, which is just www.engageemployee.com, uh, then they will find a blog there that I wrote recently, um, which kind of outlines this uh, this thinking. I've also uh, on my on my um, LinkedIn profile, I've got several articles about the nature of releasing control, how it can uh, be used to affect change in um, 
uh, in recruitment or assessment approaches, measuring for expectations rather than actions and behaviors. So uh, those those options are out there, but I'm always more, more than happy to hear from people and uh, connect directly. Fabulous. Thank you so much, Cloda. I really appreciate your time and your insights and ideas. And thank you to everyone listening to the interview. If it's triggered any questions or comments that you'd like to share with me and or Cloda, then please email me at Antoinette at AntoinetteOglethorpe.com or post a comment on my blog um, or get in touch through the various other forms that Cloda mentioned just then. And that's it for now. I look forward to speaking to you next time. Bye for now. Thanks, Antoinette. <laughs>